God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time. With no point of reference, he spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of light. And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. The stars were made to worship so See your heart in everything you make. Every burning star is signified of grace. Creation sings your praises so Don't speak in vain, no syllable empty or void. For once you have spoken, nature and silence follow the sound of your voice. And as you
Father, we want to thank you for the greatness of who you are, and your great power, and your love, and your mercy. We've come today to worship you, to declare who you are, and to open our hearts to you. In this hour together, Father, we also come to lay our burdens at your feet. Every one of us is here today with something burdening us, something concerning us. We give it to you. We pray for those who are grieving today. We pray for those who are feeling the the reality of, of physical pain. We pray for those who are struggling in a broken relationship. We pray for those who are who are thinking about the future and and it it seems like every road is dark. We pray for your grace upon us. Your grace of healing, comfort, direction, renewal. Father, we thank you for the ministries of this church and We are grateful for all the ways in which you help us to serve each other and encourage and love each other and keep each other accountable. We also pray for churches around us. And today we pray for the Eastern Hills Wesleyan Church in Williamsville. Thank you for this body of believers, for their influence on their community and beyond. And as they worship today and throughout all that they do, may they know your blessing in a very real, tangible way. Father, we pray for the needs beyond us, for this nation and the divisiveness that we see every day. Pray for healing that's focused on you. We pray for all who are still recovering and and struggling from recent disasters and tragedies. And we ask that you would bring your peace, your healing, comfort, and blessing. We pray, Father, for those who are refugees in this world, who have to live away from their homes, who live in refugee camps that are often very difficult places to live. We ask that you would protect them and bring healing to them and make it possible to be able to go home again. Where there's war and violence, it's just everyday life. We pray that you would bring healing. We think of the the bombing in Egypt this week and our hearts break for lost lives and for those who are injured. We ask, Father, that you would bring your healing grace in that place. Lord, we pray for all of the missionaries, people serving you in different places of the world that are connected to us. And in this holiday time when they may miss their family more than ever, in this time when they may be thinking about the shortage of their funding or about the protection and travels, we ask that you would, you would help each one of them to know your presence and your comfort and your blessing and the meeting of every need. And Lord, we think about the persecuted church today. We think about people like Bao and others who, who risk their lives to take the scriptures to places in Southeast Asia and in other places of the world where this is a, something illegal and yet where people are yearning to have the word that we take so for granted. 
protect them. And we pray that you would make your word available to people who desperately seek it and need it. Father, as we come today, we want to thank you for being present with us. You've blessed us immensely. May our hearts be so open to you that we hear you and see you and respond to you through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's scripture are selected verses from the book of Malachi. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have turned his hill country into wasteland and left his inheritance to to the desert jackals. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Let me invite you to uh, stand, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. It would have been fun to uh, have a hidden camera in all of our homes this morning as we got ready for church. Because if, um, if your experience is like many I hear about and ours, particularly when our children were young, Sunday morning can be the most frantic and hectic time of the morning of the week, right? I mean, if things can go wrong, they go wrong on Sunday morning when you're already running late. 
You know, your children spill their cereal and milk all over themselves and you. And the dog gets out and you're chasing around the neighborhood trying to catch him. The, uh, you know, you can't find everybody's shoes that the, they need to wear. And, you know, everything just seems to implode. And it's the day when you, when you think this is the one day we want, we'd love for everything to be smooth. And you would think that God would make it all smooth, right? But it seems like it's the exact opposite for most of us. One of the things that I'm, I ask myself often to think about, why do we do this? Why do we go through all of that? Why do we put ourselves... I mean, I have a friend who, who uh, is not a, a Christian, and uh, he subscribes to the New York Times, and he gets up on Sunday morning and gets the paper, and he spends the morning drinking coffee and eating uh, an omelet and reading the paper. And, you know, it's such a relaxing day. Why, why do we do this instead of that? Why do the musicians spend so much time rehearsing? Why do teachers prepare so much time in getting their lessons ready to teach? Why do we go through all of this? I often think when cars, standing up here, I see cars driving by on the road, and I'm wondering, thinking to myself, if they're not church people, they must be scratching their heads wondering, why are all those people at the church? Why would they do that? And it's a legitimate question. Why do we do it? But here's a deeper question. How does what we do here on Sundays affect how we live every other day when we're out there? Because the point of worship on Sunday is to connect what we do here with all the rest of life. When we talk about worshiping God... We often think it's singing our praises, or maybe it's prayer. It's coming to this place on Sunday. But the truth is, when we read the scriptures, worship is about God in all of life, and all of life as an act of worship. And I think that's what Malachi is trying to get at. We've come to the end of the Minor Prophets, and many of you are probably going, it's about time. Wow, man. <laughs> Somebody said to me you know, earlier, man, Minor Prophets are so depressing to read through them. Such heavy stuff. You know, you get to the end of this thing, and the very last word is total destruction. <laughs> right? I mean, somebody said they were hoping at first service that when Cindy read Scripture, she was going to end it that way. I was thinking about that with Jane a minute ago. The end is total destruction. There is this sense where you feel like, man, it's so heavy. And it is heavy. Prophets tend to be heavy. And this is no different. Malachi is speaking to the exiles who've come back to Jerusalem. And there is a, he's not only the last in the 12 of the minor prophets, but he is the last of the prophets in general that come to Jerusalem. And there is some distance between Zechariah and Haggai that are the earlier last of the earlier ones. There's years between them. By the time Malachi comes on the scene, Jerusalem's been rebuilt. The wall's been rebuilt. The temple's been rebuilt. And the people are going through the things that they're supposed to do, but they don't mean it. They're just going through the motions. God has become disconnected to them. And they've become disconnected with God. And and nothing really seems to matter. And they feel like God isn't doing anything for them. And the whole prophecy is about God making accusations toward them and them making accusations toward God. It's this bitter fight you get a sense. And I'm convinced that the reason they don't see God, the reason they're struggling like this with God, the reason they think that God doesn't care, that God's not involved, that it doesn't matter what they do, it's because they have this little tiny view of God. Back in the 1950s, I think, J.B. Phillips wrote a brilliant little tiny book called Your God is Too Small. If you ever get your hands on it, read it. It's powerful. And that's what Israel's wrestling with. And quite frankly, every one of us wrestles with the same thing. It is is at the heart of every one of our problems. We have an image of God that is too small. 
And it comes out in a variety of ways. It comes out in, 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 our, in what we do with what we have. So you get to chapter 3, and uh, the prophet says to them, God says to the people, you're robbing me. And they say to him, how are we robbing you? I'm not robbing you. He says, yes, you are. You're robbing me because you're not bringing to me the, the tithes and the offerings that you're supposed to bring. I have blessed you immensely. I brought you back from exile. And now you're planting crops and they're growing. And you have lots and lots of produce from everything that you're growing. And you're not giving me anything. It's a sign that they don't think it matters to God what they give them. It's a sign that they think we have the right to hang on to everything for ourselves and we can be tight-fisted and God's not going to do anything about it. God doesn't care. And he says, I do. I think one of the things that, one of the ways in which we see our small view of God is what we do with our possessions. And how we even think about our possessions. Because most of us are thinking, and the, the, the struggle in our minds is, thinking of the, the gift of our tithes and our offerings to God, to his kingdom. We, we tend to think, if not consciously, subconsciously, that it's sort of like doing our taxes. You know, when you do your taxes, you want to take every deduction you can so that when you get to the end of it, you're paying as little as possible. And I think sometimes we sort of think that way about God. Okay, God, I'm not giving you more money, but I've read my Bible more this week, so that ought to count. I'm not giving you as much of what I possess, but I have gone to the prayer vigil two or three times, so that should knock some off of my bill, right? And what we don't realize is that what we're really saying to God is, you really haven't done that much for me. I don't really owe you anything. Everything I have, I've accumulated, I've gained it, I've gathered it. It's mine, and you can't have it. And we live with this tight-fisted kind of perspective about God. And when you live with the tight-fisted perspective with God... You live a tight-fisted life, period. It's because we think God is small. It comes out in our relationships. Lots of things that, that the prophets talk about, a lot of them talk about injustice. You hear that, you see that theme over and over and over again throughout most of the prophets. Malachi doesn't really talk that much about it. One little section he talks about taking care of widows and orphans and aliens among you. But what he's really concerned about is in chapter 2, beginning of verse 10, and he starts talking about family relationships. He's concerned about family relationships. Because they are our most intimate relationships. And he has two things that he's upset with them about. One of them is, he says... If you're willing to marry women of other nations and men of other nations, then something is wrong with your view of me. Now, that's not a racial issue. God is not saying, I don't want you to marry anyone of another race. That has absolutely nothing to do with it. It's about idolatry. It's about the God that you worship. Because the people of other nations around Israel worship other gods. They don't worship Yahweh. They reject Yahweh. They have no consideration for Yahweh. And he's saying, if I, if I don't mean enough to you, if the, I'm not important enough to you, that you would marry people who worship other gods and who have nothing to do with me, then you have a very small view of me and I am minimal in your life. about those connections. But then he goes on to say, let's talk about those of you who are married, the Jews who've married the Jews. And I need you to understand that I'm upset with the way you are treating 
In this case, he talks about your wife. And he says, you, you are mistreating your wife, and it le- it's leading to decisions, and you're divorcing your wife. And he says, I hate divorce. Now, I think there are some things that we need to understand centuries later, what he's talking about. He's not saying divorce is some, something irreconcilable between us and God if that happens to us. But I think God is saying he hates divorce because it's so painful. It's hard on everybody. It's painful. But you also have to understand the context of God saying this. In that culture, women had no rights virtually at all. And women could not divorce their husbands no matter how heinously the husband may treat them. But husbands could divorce their wives for anything. If his wife burned their ba- his bagel in the morning, you're out. If you undercooked the lamb, you're out. If you didn't clean up the house the way I want you to, you're out. And what the men were doing is they were, they were getting tired of these women. They were getting tired of the relationship. And they wanted to do what they wanted to do. They didn't want to work at a relationship. They didn't, want to, they didn't want to try to make the relationship work. They didn't want to invest that much into it. They were thinking selfishly about their relationship. And so they would find some excuse to get rid of this wife and then do what they want. And they are extricating themselves from the responsibility of being a husband and most of the time being a father too. And you can understand why God says, I hate that. And he talks about it in the context of him being our father and being in the context of that our relationship with him and how it's expressed in our relationship with other people. Because the scriptures tell us again and again and again that how we treat other people is a clear indication of what we think about God. And you only make those kinds of self-centered decisions if you don't think very much of God. But he also says, it's just sort of this general sense of all the desires that I have for you, all the things that I'm asking you to do, are burdensome to you. Your response to me is, oh, again, you have something else you want me to do. It's just this, it's this weight around your necks. That's how you think about it. And you see that in the first chapter when he talks about the kinds of sacrifices they're bringing. They're bringing animals to sacrifice, but they're the animals they don't want to begin with. I mean, he says, these animals are maimed, they're diseased, they're the kind of animals you couldn't, you couldn't give them away to anybody else. And you're thinking, what should we do with these? Oh, let's give them to God. You know, it reminds me of the stories of my aunt and uncle who were missionaries in South America back in the 60s, and people would send them used tea bags. Really? Seriously? You know, I mean, there is this sense of, well, we don't want it anymore, so we'll give it to God. And he says to them, okay, you try giving your governor those kinds of gifts and see how he likes it. You think about the person you would love to spend a day with. Somebody you really admire, someone who's important in your life, somebody you think, it could be somebody who's, from history or somebody contemporary. It might be someone from the arts or the sciences or someone in politics or sports or whatever the case may be. This person you're thinking, if I could spend one day with another person, uh, just, you know, just having a conversation and talking with them, uh, this is the person. You think about that person. So the day comes and they ring your doorbell and you go to answer it and you invite them in and you say, well, let, let me go get us something to eat and drink. And you walk into your kitchen and you open up the refrigerator and you're looking around. There's a bag of stuff in there that you don't even know what it is. And you open it up. And wow, that's been there a while. And you think, oh, whatever. And you throw that on a plate. And then you, grab, you get some pop that's been open for a couple of weeks and you pour that into a couple of glasses. And you take that in. You put it on paper plates and paper cups. And you walk back to them and you sort of toss it on the table and say, here. Would you do that to somebody you, you have this sense of honor for? Of course not. What would you do? You would have prepared a meal or ordered the best meal you could find. 
And you put it on your best dishes and you bring it to them as, a, as a, an offering of honor and respect. Because they're important to you. And God is saying, when you think about what you're giving me, your time, your energy, your gifts, your talents, is God getting the best that we have or is God getting the scraps? Malachi's got a hard word for us. I mean, you, you cannot read this prophecy with an open mind and not be heavily convicted. I've been reading it over and over again, and every time I get convicted about something else. But here's the amazing thing about God. He is not willing to leave us in this small-minded perspective of him. And what is his solution? What's his answer to this? He says in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my messenger. And he's going to enlarge your view of me. He's going to show you what I'm really like. And while there is some, there's some part of the messenger that's referring to John the Baptist, at the heart of it, he's talking about Jesus. And Jesus comes, the word in flesh, God in flesh, to say, this is what God is really like. This is the vision of God that I want you to have. And when we get an enlarged vision of God... Things change. Now we start thinking, not how little can I give to God and still be okay with him, but how much can I give and learn to trust him. I wonder what would happen if, if this larger view of God, if out of that we all decided we're going to give $5 a week more to the church than we do now. Or $10 or $15 or $50, something more, whatever it may be, than what we are currently doing. As is an act of saying, God, I believe you're bigger than I think you are. Because here's the thing. God says to them, you try me, test me. Give me more than you think you can afford and watch me Bless you. Now, this is not a quid pro quo kind of thing that some people teach. That God, that if, if we give to God, God will give us lots of money. I don't think that's, quite frankly, I'm not sure that's the greatest thing God can do in blessing our lives. Maybe what God is saying to us, if you are more generous with me, I'm going to fill your heart with more peace and a, and, a, and a deeper sense of love and compassion. You're just going to have more joy because you're not living with trying to protect everything you have and trying to build fences around everything you have and trying to guard everything you have. What you, when you begin to be generous with God, you know what we experience? We experience freedom. We get freedom to let go. And to receive the blessings he has from us. But we also find that when Jesus comes, there is this, the messenger comes, he communicates to us the, the greatness of God. There are lots of terms that the Old Testament uses for God. But a common term is, is Yahweh Sabaoth. And uh, we, it's translated a variety of ways. In the old English, it was the Lord of hosts. Some translated the Lord of heaven's armies. You might have noticed in this translation, the NIV, it was Lord Almighty. And if you read through it, you will find that spoken numerous times. It's used 285 times in the Old Testament. 24 of them are in this little book of Malachi. 24 times, it talks about the Lord Almighty. I think Malachi is trying to tell us something. And this is a battle word. This is a word that speaks to the greatness of God, the power of God. It's the word that David uses when he faces Goliath and he says to him, you come with a spear and a sword, I come in the name of the Lord Almighty. 
And the power that I have is greater than the power you have. I know it doesn't look like it to everybody, but it is. And in a few minutes, everybody gets it. And what Malachi is saying to us is we need this bigger image of God who is not a God among the gods. He is the only God. He is the only God. Everything else that we call gods, everything else in existence that people worship is simply a manifestation of rejecting Yahweh. There is only one God. Satan is not the the equal opposite of God. Satan is the equal opposite of angels. There is no other than God. He has no rival. And so when when we are willing to give more of what we have, when we trust God more, we are placing our lives, we're placing what we have and everything that we are into the hands of the one who has all the power in the world to do everything he says. There is no rival, no foe. And he will do what he says. And that ought to cause us to take what he says Seriously. And this God who we take seriously is not only great, not only powerful, and a God that that we feel a sense of, of fear and awe and respect, but also love. The very first words out of God's mouth in this prophecy are, I have loved you. You would think he might say, I have all the power in the world over you. I have all of the majesty and might that's possible over you. But he doesn't. The first thing he says is, I have loved you. And the people say to him, really, how? We don't see it. Maybe you've said that. When you get in a tight place, when you're feeling as if everything is crumbling apart, one of the easiest things to think is that God doesn't love us. Because we have this small view of him. And we think that God loving us means that everything in life is going to be perfect. But we live in a fallen, broken world in which, let's be honest, the problems in our lives are not because of something God has done. Most of them are because of things we've done. And what does God do in response? He doesn't say to us, well, hey, you made your bed, you sleep in it. He keeps coming to us again and again and again. I've loved you. I love you. You're my special possession. When he says this to Israel, it's not as if they've figured everything out and life is perfect. They're doing everything exactly he wants them to do. You see that throughout the whole rest of the prophecy. It's just that he loves because God's being is love. At the heart of who God is is love. Now, I, I admit it's a weird way for, in our mind for him to, to, ex, to explain it when he says, here's how I've loved you. I, I've loved Jacob, your ancestor. I've hated Esau, his brother. Okay, Really? So God tells us he loves us by hating something else. That one makes, you know, we make us, makes us think about that a little bit. But here's the thing. John Oswald says we need to understand a couple of things about the way Semitic languages and Semitic peoples express themselves. For one thing, in our northern European thinking, which most of us probably fit that, that mindset, we tend to understate what we're thinking and feeling. We tend to be hesitant about expressing our emotions. We tend to not be as, as effusive with our words until we feel like we can trust people to say things. But the Semitic peoples tend to be the exact opposite. They say far more than they're thinking. They say, they say it in far emotional ways than they're thinking. And so what you end up with is they are experts at hyperbole. 
I mean, it's what Jesus does when he says to his disciples, if you want to be my followers, you have to hate your mother and father and hate your brother and sister. Now, we know from all that Jesus teaches, he doesn't want us to hate our family. What he does want us to do is to understand that if we're going to be followers of Jesus, no one is more important to us than Jesus is. And sometimes you have to say things in a way that gets our attention to make that clear. And God is saying to them in a way that gets their attention to make that clear. But the other part of it is there is a sense in which in which in the Semitic languages to love is to is to choose and to hate is to reject. And so God chooses Jacob because Jacob wants God. Despite all of his struggles and his bumbling to get there, in his heart, he wants God. And Esau is rejected by God because Esau rejects God. He wants nothing to do with God. He's going to go his own way, do his own thing. And so these words, love and hate, are really just expressions of how Jacob and Esau have made their choices about who God is. But God doesn't reject Esau arbitrarily. It's because Esau chooses to reject God to begin with. He wants nothing to do with God. And ultimately, God says to human beings, if you don't want me, then I'm going to let you go your own way. I'm always here for you. I'm always after you. I'm always wooing you. But ultimately, he lets us choose the path that we want to choose. And the consequences of it. But God is saying to Israel, I love you. I will always love you. I care for you. And he says in chapter 3, verse 6, remember, I do not change. This is unchanging love that I have for you. Nothing will ever make any difference. You can trust me. Ultimately, when we begin to see a bigger vision of God, we begin to understand that worshiping God with all of our life is not a burden. It's glorious joy. If everything that the messenger tells us about God is true, then all of life as worship and worship as all of life is the greatest thing any of us could ever, decision we could ever make. Because we are giving ourselves all of our lives to the one who created us and loves us and rules over all things and wants nothing but what is best for us. And we will be like these well-fed lambs frolicking in the field in freedom and joy and grace and healing. Tozer once said, we were created to have an everlasting preoccupation with God. An everlasting preoccupation with God. And I think Malachi is telling us, if you want to know life as joy, if you want to know life as peace, if you want to know life as as freedom, if you want to know life as love and everything that you've ever dreamed of deep inside of you. It starts with an everlasting preoccupation with the great God of all. Holy Father, thank you for opening our eyes to you, for your convicting grace, Help us to see you more and more clearly, and we pray this through Christ. Amen. I'd like to invite the ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he has given to each of us.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.